do something that allows for a digital stop. And my argument is that ritual allows for that. It allows us to put a pause in a constant stream of experience and to take a moment and then to go back into the daily stream of our experience, enriched, shifted, and more awake and aware as a result. Welcome to the Digital Habit Lab from Mind Over Tech, a place where we explore our relationship with technology. I'm your host, Menka Sangvi. In each episode, I'll be joined by guests from different walks of life as we observe how we use tech, reflect on how it sometimes uses us, and experiment with ways to make sure it is actually helping us to do what we value most in life. Each season of our podcast focuses on a theme, and this one is about intention. We're asking questions like, what is intention? What does it feel like to be intentional? And why is it so important to the way we use technology? Today we speak with Tiu Dehan about creativity, ritual design, awe and wonder. Such fascinating areas of expertise, which she teaches and shares with others through her company, The Possibility of Wonder. Her background is really interesting, with an English literature degree from Oxford University, a career in pop music, being the founder of a charity focused on children playing in nature, and lots more. The reason I wanted to speak with her is because I was curious about her practices, and I really wanted to know how she applies them in her life practically, including in her digital life. Stay tuned as the conversation quickly goes from exploring how helpful it can be to switch off your computer at night to how profoundly transformative virtual reality can be. To you, your website says you're an idea doula, ritual designer, creative mentor, and serendipiter. Did I say that right? It's a made-up word. There's no rules around how you say it, so yeah. Perfect. With the first set of questions, I'm, I'm just going to ask you to give your gut response, just the first thing that comes to mind. When I say the word intention, mm. what does that bring up for you? I immediately see a kind of narrowing of the focus and a clarifying of a path. In the past week, has there been a time or a place when you felt really intentional? Yes. I have been through an interesting few days of actually doing just that. I'm often a mentor to others, but I want more guidance and also more community because one of the things about being a weirdo maverick with no understandable job titles is there's not many more of you out there. And I just joined a female-only co-working online space for a month, and I feel already like all of these women who are coming together have all been sharing problems and questions. And just by joining it, it clarifies my intention. That's really interesting. Speaking of that feeling, mm. what do you recognize in yourself when you're not being intentional? Like, What are your warning signs or your red flags? Well, it's interesting that you frame it as a negative thing, because sometimes I would see not being intentional as a great thing. I think we need fallow periods. We need times when we can meander and go off piste and not have a task or an outcome and to allow for um, reflection, rest, absorbing of other kinds of ideas, cross-referencing, thinking outside of the narrowness of a focus. So actually, I don't see it as red flags. I see mm. the idea of, for example, going for a walk and instead of going from A to B, intentionally getting lost is a good thing. Um, mm. Or having a day a week where 
you follow one idea to an, to another and you go off on a crazy adventure because actually it's when you go off piece that sometimes the best thinking can happen and often we can get stuck staring at a screen trying to fulfill the intention that we started out with and we can get stuck because that's not actually how our creative imagination functions we actually become much more resourced if we allow for our peripheral vision and our oblique ideas and all sorts of influences to come in from other areas so that's the positive side of course there are also so <laughs> to answer your actual question if i'm binge watching netflix more than four <laughs> four hours in a row or maybe more than seven <laughs> hours in a row which has been known um that's a red flag it's like what are you doing go to bed you know if I'm sort of if I'm spending so much time scrolling that my when I look at the stats on my phone I realize I've accidentally kind of spent the best part of a working week looking at images on a phone that's a red flag they can still be fruitful actually but there are limits yeah screen time I think basically screen addiction is the is the one where the red flags are really necessary for me. It's interesting that you emphasize the positive aspects of being unintentional, but the way you described it, the things that you described, they sounded very intentional in, in the <laughs> sense that, you know, you decided to go for a walk without any specific goal, but that itself yeah. is, is obviously a um, clarity that you brought to bear on the walk. That's true. You're right. So there is actually there's a quote which I use a lot and I actually live by and a lot of my work is around this idea. So I'm going to say the quote because it does actually respond to this question. The quote is from a book called The Art of Possibility by Rosamond and Benjamin Zander. And the quote goes like this, in a universe of measurement, you set a goal and strive to achieve it. In a universe of possibility, you create a context and let life unfold. Mm. So both are necessary, but the goal in achieving bit is the linear, I'm going to do that thing. And the context of allowing is the space of, I'm going to go for a walk and get lost. You know, you still created the intention to go for a walk. You've still maybe put some rules in, in your engagement with how you go for that walk or what kind of choices you might make to subvert your regular expectations. But the context is the thing that you maintain, not the, what happens on the inside. You become an observer and appreciator of the natural evolution of things. And that quote, for me, sums up lots of different aspects of the work that I do, including how can we create a container that has integrity and authenticity so that we can also remain present to what arises. And, and that is an art form. I think the words that really stood out to me in the quote and in, in what you said afterwards is context mm. and container. Yeah. And the intention comes to bear on those things rather than on a specific goal or outcome that you wish to achieve through that. Yeah. And I think that's a big difference. So earlier, when I asked you about the negative side of being unintentional, you said that usually happens because of screen addiction, which, of course, we all struggle with, and it's something you struggle with. 
Tell me more about what makes that negative. Like, what's the difference in your experience of, say, going for an open-ended, long, creative walk versus going with the flow for many hours on Netflix? The particular difference is the tech aspect, which is, one, you could argue that you could become an exercise addict, I suppose. Some people do. In fact, I knew somebody who had been an alcoholic and then became an exercise addict and ex- and said that his addictive personality was so intensely <laughs> you know strong that no matter what he did he was going to become an addict but it was much better to become a marathon runner than a boozer <laughs> but in the examples that I gave before the difference is the tech staring at screens for many 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 hours a day is part of this 21st century situation in which we find ourselves and it's unprecedented and none of us are you know who knows what it's doing to our brains we have no idea um, because it's impossible to know the long-term effects and also what it's doing to our perception of self and other. I think that's the really that's the bit that already feels like we're beginning to feel the ill effects of that in terms of, I mean, just seeing ourselves on screen all the time, for example. That's never happened before in human history. And also presenting ourselves in a particular way and seeing other people present themselves in a particular way, all of which serves to kind of be confusing to our ways of appreciating or experiencing other people and it does away with so much nuance and complexity and it also makes everything flat and it's just it's I mean I like a lot of aspects of it honestly but I feel like it's just there are some things about it that feel dangerous if you do it too much and we all do it too much I do it too much everyone does it's designed to get into your under your skin and to I mean we all know about the the way in which these things are designed in order to become a kind of impulse. I can't even read physical books anymore. It's appalling. I did an English degree. You know, I used to be a bookworm. I can't read physical books, or at least I can read them for a few minutes, but I never finish them. Funny thing is, yesterday I picked up this book from about 20 years ago, and it had a paragraph that was a whole page long, like a whole page long paragraph. You rarely see that these days. Yeah. And there's lots of lists, numbered lists <laughs> saying, you know, yeah. everything's reductive. Everything's designed for skittish attention spans of which I am guilty. You know, it's just, yeah. So, so all of those things are addictive, I think. Yeah. So when you're talking about addiction, you mentioned that it's not the addiction itself. That's the problem. It's, it's what you're addicted to and whether it's healthy for you. And also it might be interesting to delineate. I have a daily practice, for example, which I am addicted to, as in, I don't think straight if I haven't done it. It's it's sort of, Mm. it's absolutely necessary for my mental, emotional, psychological, spiritual health. And it's a daily practice. I've been doing it for many years. It's called morning pages. It's where you free write for three sides of A4 by hand without reading it back every morning. I cannot function without doing that. It's like mm-hmm. as necessary as getting up and going for a pee in the morning. Mm. So fascinating, isn't it? These these words, intention, addiction, even yeah. habit. And then to add on the ritual piece, and it is a a connection to something bigger than us. Let's talk about ritual more. 
because of course it's something you're so well known for, including your brilliant TED talk, which you did when was it in 2016? That's right. My favorite part of that talk is when you're describing your mother, oh. who was so wonderful at celebrating yes. life, not just the birthdays and the big things you said, That's the right. little things, the everyday moments. Yeah. And you said in that talk that the greatest gift that she gave you was simply that capacity to stop and notice and be present to yeah. the beauty in front of us. I'm a mother of a two-year-old yeah. and it really made me think quite hard actually about what I want my son to learn from me, about how much children absorb from their parents' actual behavior in the mundane, mm -hmm. everyday settings. It's really inspiring. I'm so happy to, I'm really touched by that. That makes me so happy. That feels like mama is leaping about in the heavens going, yes, another one. <laughs> and I don't mean in a sort of, yes, anyways, she would have been a leaper about her in the heavens. <laughs> That's can, quite an accurate way. I can way. imagine. <laughs> but I really, that makes me really happy. Also, you are, I would argue, that's that's your beauty and your speciality and your mastery is is imparting that to others. I think it's why we resonate with each other because like, oh yeah, I see you. I know what you're up to. Thank you. And yes, I do love finding ways to help people slow down. For example, as you know, I love using my camera for mindful photography. Yes. The mechanism that you can then use to allow people to enter into that intentionally is to take photographs. I suppose my thing is you use the camera in your brain. You know, how can you capture something that has a multi-sensory <laughs> surround sound, fragrance, uh, like any number of different influences, the emotion that how can you capture something that has all of the elements and just become present? Mm -hmm. And it's quite, yeah. once you get into the habit of kind of stopping to take a snap with your inner camera, as it were, it's not a mm -hmm. difficult practice to engender there's a there's actually a meditation called a stop meditation where you literally just stop you literally in the middle of, you set a timer on your phone and say once every four hours or something when it goes off you literally stop walking and you just stand still you feel like a right lemon but you stand still for a second wherever you are for 30 seconds only and you just take in what's around you and then you move again it's like, no, we should call it the right lemon exercise <laughs> Perfect. Have the right lemon. <laughs> okay, so what is a ritual mm. and why is it important? So a ritual is a moment of meaning which we create to honor a transition of some kind. The way that I describe it is it's a um, container for emotion, reflection, transition, and sometimes celebration, not always. And it is a a connection to something bigger than us. So it's a sacred experience. It doesn't necessarily have to be religious in any way, but it's not just a repeated behavior. So for example, brands might talk about wine o'clock being a ritual, but that's just a repeated behavior that you have as a transition from being in the day to the evening. What that's just a repeated behavior. Yes, okay, it's a repeated behavior, which you impart with meaning, but it's not calling anything bigger. Taking communion, <laughs> where the wine has been imbued with a much bigger meaning, that's a ritual, right? So it's the difference between going for a walk and going on a pilgrimage. There's still, You mm. could say your daily walk is a ritual, but if it's just a repeated behavior essentially for exercise and you're listening to the news all the way, I would say it's not. It's a, it's a habit. 
I think that's a really interesting and subtle distinction between something that's just a habit in the sense of a routine versus a ritual. That the word ritual is being used a lot in the wrong way, in my opinion. So what it is, is a a way of creating, I think, a kind of artwork that exists in time and in space without it being defined by any one sensory or creative medium. So you can't have a ritual that only exists in a photo or in a poem or in a piece of music, but you can combine them all. It's multi-sensory. You can have an experience that includes lighting a candle, um, playing a piece of music, saying some words, being in silence, eating some cake, wrapping a scarf around you, being in a particular place at a particular time. And all of those sensory things, which are impossible to capture, even with a video camera, all go into the mix of this design, of this moment of transition from one thing to another. This is not normal life. This is a moment to honour something, some sort of milestone, some sort of threshold. What kind of milestone or threshold do you think is sort of worthy of designing a ritual for? could be tiny. It could be going from one project to another. It could be going from home to work, or it could be your children leaving home and you repurposing the bedroom for something else, or it could be the anniversary of a death, or it could be recovering from cancer, or it could be grief for the planet in climate change. You know, that you can turn it into whatever you need, but often we are so busy And we are so bombarded by information that we don't take time to process. And we don't take time to delineate something which allows us to get creative about the experiences of our lives. And my argument is that ritual allows for that. It allows us to put a pause in a constant stream of experience and to take a moment and make it into something beautiful and meaningful. And then to go back into the daily stream of our experience, enriched shifted and more awake and aware as a result. Hmm. Beautiful. That makes a lot of sense. What do you think the role of rituals could be in our digital lives? Mm. You mentioned elsewhere that they're essential for boundary setting. Mm. And in our digital experience, especially given that so much of it is mediated by our smartphone, Mm. it's all the same, you know, day and night, work and home, The screen doesn't change, the apps don't change, and the social media feeds, they just keep going on and on. Do you have any tips, ideas about how to design rituals which listeners could adapt for the purposes Mm -hmm. of their digital life? Yes. One thing is to delineate the start and the end of the day really clearly. For example, if you have a playlist of a song or two or three, that allow you to ease into the day that you have playing while you perhaps make your coffee or you write your to-do list or something that gives your kind of subconscious a sense of a transition point. I have a whole bunch of rituals around creative focus. And again, a little bit like I was saying before, the idea of there being sensory aspects. If you can curate an experience for yourself that tells your brain that it's time to concentrate, utilizing all of the senses. So one would be a playlist, for example. Along with that, I burn an essential oil for focus. 
which is something which I don't know if it works, but my brain now associates that smell with this time of focus. Like if you were recording, you could definitely do something that you would know would mean I'm now in the zone. So that might be dinging a bell, um, you know, putting on your special scarf, putting a, you know, squirt of perfume, something that allows you to go, yes, I am now in this zone. So for me, there's a space, there's cleaning my desk, cleaning the window I look out of, making sure that there's calm and quiet and stillness. Like there's a kind of preparing of the context, if you like, so that Mm. when I enter into it, it's clear. So that's to do with the kind of start of the working day. Is there anything that you do at the beginning of a Zoom call? I have a practice when I'm working alongside somebody, we will have a timed check-in at the beginning of every meeting. So you will set a timer for between two and four minutes and uninterrupted, the person will be able to share whatever is present for them and including anything they want to say about the work ahead. But actually, it's an opportunity to say, I didn't sleep very well. My granny's in the hospital. Actually, I've just fallen in love. Can't get over what happened on Love Island last night. Doesn't like There's no limit to what you can say but there's no conversing and then you switch. And it's a way of, again, creating a space so that when you do enter into whatever it is you need to do, you've connected from the heart to the person you're working with or the people you're working with, and then you're all much more present with the task. Loving these ideas, mini rituals for starting the day or starting a task or a meeting. What about ending things? I mean, that can be a bit of a blur too. Yeah, at the end of the day, one way of handling it would be to literally cover up your computer with a piece of fabric. Like, don't look at it, (laughs) you know? Put it in a place where it doesn't just then become, it doesn't segue from Zoom to Netflix without a pause. Even if there's only a five-minute gap between them, you do something, you shut it down. Ideally, even shut down your actual computer, which I never do, you know? Do something that allows for a digital stop One thing that I do, which really helps me, is shutting down tabs and windows. And I do that between work sessions. And then at the end of the day, most days, I shut down all the windows, which creates a slight moment of panic because obviously I don't want to lose anything that I'm working on. So it just makes me take the time to go through and check. Do I need this information? Do I need to save this link somewhere? So there's a kind of tidying up process that goes on. Such a good practice. One other, which isn't digital, but it is to do with work, is I read this article about a woman who is a fashion designer, and she liked to work at a trestle table that was covered in canvas. And Mm. she would draw and write on the canvas all day long. So she would literally kind of use it as a whiteboard, essentially, but uh, flat beneath what she was working on. And at the end of the day, she would paint it white with white emulsion paint, and leave it to dry overnight, and the next day she'd come back to a fresh slate. I mean, that's amazing. Isn't that amazing? Just imagine that you had that smell of fresh paint and a blank canvas every single day. I love that idea. Yeah, the dream. Yeah, but it's doable. We just don't do it. You it's know, doable. Even- yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's a bit of a palaver, to be fair. What about phones? Any ideas about how we can say goodnight to them at the end of the day? Get a physical alarm clock. Don't have your phone in your bedroom. Turn it off. I'm actually doing a a ritual design piece with a hotel and we're working on combining the 
sensory elements in a hotel room, like sound and light and scent and blind and temperature, with the physical furniture. And they've got this special um, bedside cabinet, which has a phone compartment in it. And you're supposed to turn your phone off and put it in it and shut the drawer. And there's a timer, there's a sand timer, (laughs) which you use for a meditation or something. So there's all these like physical things to allow for a separation from the screens that we are so constantly attached to. Hmm. Those would be some ideas. Yeah, some really great ideas. In a way, in this conversation, we've mostly been talking about technology as something that can all too easily get in the way and interfere with our purpose, whether that's focus, creativity, or our relationships with other people. But of course, technology can have quite the opposite effect. It can be really enlivening, moving, and nourishing in ways that would actually not be possible at all otherwise. And here, I'm thinking in particular of virtual reality as an example And I know you're a fan, so I'm curious about what you love about it and how it fits in with your approach to life and to creativity. Sure. A couple of years ago, I was invited to experience something in a lab in Bristol University that's called the Intangible Realities Laboratory, or IRL, pleasingly, um, which was the brainchild of a guy called Dr. David Glowacki. My first experience of this was stepping into a room, each of us with VR headsets on and special gloves that acted a little bit like the clickers, that the, the hand controls that you get in a VR set that in games would allow you to control things or shoot things or whatever. Um, and the first experience was being in this grey box with a molecule floating in midair in front of us that happened to be Um, a molecule of a protein amino acid and you could grab it and control it so you could you could use your clickers to to attach your hands to it and then you could pull it towards you you could wear it like a scarf you could stretch it out and look down the hollow of it you could throw it between each other they were programmed to behave exactly as they do in nature so if you let go of it it would just revert to its own natural behavior then there was an artistic rendering of the same thing there's a very faint tree line and one side looks as if it's sunset about two hours ago. So there's a faint blush on the horizon, but it's mostly dark. And then you are a point of light at the center of your chest. So there's a bright white sort of melon sized living ball of white flame, if you like. And each of the other people have the same. So I'm in there with two or three other people which means essentially what you can see are these moving balls of light. Their hands also generate balls of light. And the whole thing leading towards this concept of this is a scientifically accurate rendering of what matter looks like and what we look like as pure energy. You know, this guy is a chemist and he knows (laughs) how to illustrate the difference between matter and consciousness, but it's never been visible before. So the whole meditation, the whole experience became this sort of how would it be if you were to, for a moment, experience the energetic reality that exists within the physical illusion that we inhabit? You know, we look at our arm and we go, that's an arm. It's mostly empty space. You know, the actual reality is 
the cells that we are, that everything is around us is primarily emptiness with a little bit of energy inside it. But mostly you can't see that because you confuse solid matter for what animates it. Whereas in this thing, you could suddenly see what animates it. And all of a sudden you're connecting with people without knowing their age, their gender, their race, their anything. And you're just seeing their energetic essence and the energetic essence of the building blocks of matter around us. So we created this 45-minute experience and we piloted it. And people reported afterwards suddenly coming out going, I no longer fear death. You know, I suddenly have a sense of what I truly look like. (laughs) I've suddenly had a massive shift in my consciousness around racism. You know, like this kind of profound, it was 45 minutes long and people were reporting this sort of extraordinary connection to the essence of who they truly are, you know, and who everyone truly is. And once you've seen it, you kind of go out for a walk in the street and you're, you know, you're in the queue at the supermarket. You go, ah, you're a point of light. Ah, you're a point of light. It sort of translates (laughs) into the everyday in a way that you can do in an abstract way. But once you've seen it, you go, oh, no, 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 you are. (laughs) I know this to be true. Wow. So is this something that's available in the market now? That was called isness, that experience. And it is currently in beta on Oculus, but it's not readily available. They're still kind of piloting different versions of it. The latest version is something called Numadelic Flow, N-U-M-A-D-E-L-I-C Flow. And there's currently a pilot project in place where you can become light bodies in different places and play with a molecule together. And it's extraordinary. It feels like you're genuinely connecting. And it's deeply nourishing in a way that I have never experienced in any kind of virtual connection of any kind. It's so different to Zoom. And in experiencing it, I have begun to very tentatively explore the well-being stuff that is out there in the VR space, some of which I don't like at all. I don't like the kind of dolphins leaping about in an 80s new age cave you know what I mean you hate dolphins (laughs) I love dolphins I just don't like the kind of cheesy new age cosmic art aesthetic um but I'm quite excited about VR it's great and it's one of the examples of the kinds of ways in which tech is actually designed to expand you nourish you connect you I mean there's a danger in it becoming so compelling that you totally separate from the reality that you're around that's the beauty of the isness and the new modelic flow stuff is the seeing the light that everybody is is actually something you can apply in the world <laughs> like in the queue mm. at the supermarket yeah there's a photographer called uh, dorothy lang who said something like the camera is a tool for allowing you to see the world more clearly nice what you're describing is it's like that virtual reality experience then allows you to see people in the supermarket queue more clearly yeah, you know exactly that's just really amazing yeah i love that i want to circle back to this concept we were talking about right at the start about going for a walk without a plan and opening up the opportunity for unexpected things to happen creating the context for serendipity. 
With our digital experiences, there's so much automation and personalization. There's the algorithms that are curating our feeds. So the information ecosystems that we're in, they can become very homogenous. And so there's less chance that, you know, I'll come across something that's genuinely going to surprise me. That's right. So how can we introduce more serendipity intentionally into those online experiences? Well, there are some digital applications for engineering serendipity. One is simply using the hive mind that exists. Sometimes that could be asking a question or being able to connect people easily who wouldn't otherwise be connected to each other because of the ease of digital setups. One of the kind of ground rules of engineering serendipity is taking minor actions um, because often if we try to generate something that feels impossible in our just in our thoughts it stays there and one of the ways of getting out of that is taking a risk ideally one that makes you feel ever so slightly uncomfortable like stepping to the edge of your comfort zone and one Mm. thing that is often very uncomfortable for most people me included is overtly asking for help so if you can think like one way of using the digital world to engineer serendipity is clarifying a question where you go anybody want to help me with this and then chucking it out there. And that can elicit really unexpected, or do you know anybody who might be able to put me in touch with a such and such? Not just passively reading, consuming, but actively asking questions if you really want to find out something new. Yeah, and actively engaging with people whose work or offering you really admire and connecting with them in a meaningful way. I have some seriously important real life friendships that started digitally like somebody an artist on instagram whose work touched me where i wrote something we ended up communicating and then we became friends in fact one of those people she has a practice of sending a fan she has fan letter fridays so she she writes a fan mail to somebody anybody who she thinks is great on a friday and she just sends them a message and tells and doesn't expect a reply but she reaches out to somebody whose work or whatever they, she admires. And she has it like a little Friday practice and it engenders connection in a way that wouldn't otherwise be possible. So again, that's action, but it's also taking a little bit of a step past your comfort zone. And the final thing I'd say is to um, make sure that there's some randomization somewhere in, in the stuff mm. that you do. So for example, I remember hearing a, a podcast episode about a guy who used Meetup. He made an algorithm so that the things it threw at him were completely randomized. And he had a policy of having to go to whatever it told him to go to. So instead of it only following his interests, it maybe had a geographical limit or something, but it was basically, he was a computer geek who ended up going to a, a comedy night for gay bikers. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like he was just forced <laughs> the thing to yeah. provide him with unexpected outcomes. And then he had his own sort of rule of engagement about having to follow the clue, even if it felt really odd. So I'm not a geek or a tech person in any way at all, but the idea of being able to randomize your choices so that you're thwarted in your feed, your expectations aren't necessarily linear. So those are things I'd say that you can use Mm. tech for. To wrap up, it strikes me that we've covered such a diverse range of practices and that perhaps the only way that we can really figure out what's going to be most relevant and most useful for us is just experimenting and trying things out, isn't it? 
That's right. The variables change according to your individual tastes, your body clock, the task that you're engaging in, and the nature of the work itself. There's one set of practices that would work if it's just you on your own writing a book, and quite another if you're in a band writing an album. So there's all sorts of different things that you can tweak. In that spirit of experimentation, as you know, at Mind Over Tech, we've developed a deck of Digital Habit Lab cards, each card being an experiment. So I've sent these over to you and I wondered if you could choose one now that you'd be up for experimenting with this coming week. Oh, let's see. Post-it note on phone screen. That's a really good idea. Put a post-it note on your phone screen with a short message on it to help you notice when you pick it up and help make sure you're using it intentionally. I think that would be a really simple one that I could definitely make use of. That sounds like a really good idea. Sure, you've got some really nice post-it notes. You know what? I have I have cat-shaped ones that somebody sent me from. Oh, really? In fact, the person I was just talking about who I became friends with through Instagram, who does the family, she sent me these. So there you go. That's that's what can happen, people. <laughs> yep, yeah, you can get cat post-it notes. You can out of literally. It. I am living proof <laughs> that you can get cat-shaped post-it notes, and who doesn't want that? <laughs> we have gone way over time, so thank you so much to you. What's the best way that listeners can follow up and find out more about you? If anyone wants to find me, then my website is tudahan.com. Or you can find me on Instagram, which is tudahan1, the number one. And um, yeah, there's lots of new things about to be happening. So it'd be great to uh, see you over there. I also do a newsletter, not that often, honestly, sort of once a month-ish, that's always full of stuff that is specific to the newsletter audience that is only for them. Highly recommend it. Yeah. Definitely. And we'll put those links in as well. Thank you so much. It's been a joy. Take care. Bye-bye. Speaking with you was so energizing. I was buzzing with ideas afterwards. In particular, I kept going back to that powerful distinction that she made between intentionally setting a goal versus intentionally setting a context and the different results that these two paths can lead to. There is a bonus episode which we'll be sharing along with this one. You may be pleased to know it's all about how TU works with the Pomodoro technique for enabling deep work. So do check that out. I want to thank TU for her generosity of spirit in sharing her practices and insights with us. And thank you for listening. As usual, the show notes with all the links to the things we mentioned will be on our website, mindovertech.com, under the podcast section. If you enjoyed this episode, and I hope you did, please consider leaving a review and sharing it with others, especially those you think may be pleasantly surprised by it. Finally, we have a great newsletter. Feel free to sign up. It's full of ideas and inspiration and practical tips too for experimenting with your digital habits. I hope you can join us again next time. Bye for now.